0: Welcome to the SG Engage podcast where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas and best practices to help you drive impact. Hello everybody, my name is Melissa Fur, the social responsibility manager at Blackbaud, and I am in Charleston, South Carolina. I've been with the company about been about three and a half years now and have loved every minute of it. It is my honor and privilege to um, manage a portfolio of grants, giving, and volunteering programs at Blackbaud, which essentially means it's my job to engage all of our employees in these give-back programs and to help the company be a good corporate steward to the communities where our employees live and work. And I am very pleased to be here with our two guests, Lisa Tacker is with us, VP of Relief Program and Information Services at the 210 Footwear Foundation. She's a nonprofit system specialist with 25 years of experience supporting the arts and culture organizations, environmental conservation groups, and charitable foundations. She's got some wonderful wisdom to share with us today. And I'm also joined by Beth Brumall, Grants Coordinator at Charles H. Dater Foundation in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to both of you. Hi. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you both. And I want to, I kind of want to just set the stage a little (laughs) bit before we dive into our topic for those who are uh, joining us today. um, Let's start with Lisa. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the 210 Footwear Foundation does?
1: Happily. The 210 um, Footwear Foundation is a private foundation that was formed over 80 years ago. And our core mission is to provide financial assistance and educational scholarships to people who work in the footwear industry. We're a very niche foundation.
0: And you're located in Massachusetts or headquartered in Massachusetts, but serving the entire... Yes, our headquarters
1: is in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is right Uh outside of Boston. Um, Our organization was founded at 210 Lincoln Street in Boston, hence the name 210. 210. Way back in the 1930s, a group of shoemakers um, decided that they were going to help out a colleague and passed a hat and collected money to help um, one of their um, shoe people that was in trouble. And that's where 210 started. And um, here we are 84 years later and still going strong. Our headquarters now are right outside of Boston, um, Malpan, which is a suburb. And we do serve anyone who is in the um, the U.S., which includes Puerto Rico. And we offer counseling services to footwear employees who live in Canada.
0: Lovely. And Beth, turning to you now, could you tell us a little bit about the Charles H. Dater Foundation?
2: Hi, I'm Beth Brummel. I have been with the foundation for over 30 years. Uh, The foundation was created in 1985 uh, by Charles H. Dater. And... We provide grants to charities in the greater Cincinnati area that enhance the lives of youth. We have a small board, a working board, and uh, we make over 160
0: grants a year. Wonderful. Thanks, Beth. So I know we're all here to talk about um, how to deal with crises, how to avoid mission creep in times of crises. So I want to just dive right into that uh, with our first question. When you have been faced with a crisis at your organization, um, how did you serve pressing needs without risking mission creep? And uh, Lisa, why don't we start with you?
1: It's an interesting question. I think our foundation is unique in the sense that that's kind of our mission. We provide emergency financial relief to people who are in crisis. So um, unlike most um, grant-making organizations, we give cash directly to Employees that work in the footwear industry. So we—that's kind of our mission. Our mission is crisis relief. We have had to deal with some pretty um, extreme crises in the past few years. So there's been many opportunities for us to kind of refine our process and get better at what we do. But that—that that is our our mission is crisis relief.
0: It Makes sense. So it really sort of folded in to begin. You're already. Operating in a very adaptable setting, you know, the organization, the infrastructure is built to deal with crisis. Yeah,
1: but I will say, you know, we, we do have a very small staff, and when we were faced with like really this, COVID was our largest crisis that we'd ever come in contact with, and you know, we we have a partnership with the employers, the footwear employers in the industry. So We work closely mm-hmm. with them. To gather information that we need, you know, the, the goal is to get cash to people as quickly as possible. So we utilize all the tools that we have available to us. We'll gather employee lists from um, from um, companies so that we can quickly verify employment. Just, you know, we have um, time and industry guidelines that we have to abide by. So, and but the goal is to get cash to people as quickly as possible, and just having to pivot and maybe sometimes on a daily process kind of reevaluate where we were with the number of um, applications coming in on a, on a normal month, we'll get maybe 150 applications during COVID. For instance, we were getting over a thousand a month. So, and during the COVID crisis, we gave out over, we gave out thousands of, of grants totaling over $5 million. So, and we, we really did increase staff. So we used, technology to make that happen and just had to be very innovative in the way that we thought and approached how we provide that crisis relief.
0: That's great. And I I mean, my next question was going to be like, how on earth did you deal with that increase to a thousand applications? But technology was the answer. So we're going to dig into that a little bit later. Uh, But first, I want to hear from Beth. Same question to you. When your organization was faced with a crisis, how did you still serve pressing needs without risking mission creep?
2: Well, two crises come to mind, the stock market downturn in 2008 and 2009 and the COVID pandemic. In the first case, uh, we went from a $60 million foundation to a $30 million foundation. Uh, our grant-making philosophy has always been to give a little more than our required 5% distribution. During the 2008 uh, turndown, we made no new grants new organizations. We stuck with the people, the organizations that we had a long-term partnership with. And in order to avoid Mission creep, we decreased the, num- the amount of dollars that were awarded and we were able to maintain all of the programs we had currently been f- funding over the years. Um, some organizations received a little less, some stayed the same. Then, as the economy approved, our asset base returned back to its previous levels. We returned to our previous grant making approach. When COVID struck, we had the good fortune of having had a significant increase in our assets uh, from a trust founder, Charles Dater. Our assets went from 60 million to more than 100 million. As a result, we were able to increase our giving with special grants. And we, we collaborated with our local community foundation. We gave it a significant grant there so that our partners in philanthropy will would know that we are supporting the fund through the GCF. And we also took about 20 of our long-term grantees and we made a special grant to them in addition to our regular grant making that we would have done.
0: So for the special grant making portfolio that came about in response to, well, two things, in response to the crisis, COVID crisis, but then also a wonderful increase in the amount of funding you had to disperse. Did you have to, um, well, talk Mm -hmm. us through how you got your board on board with this well, new direction?
2: Actually, it was the board's decision. We had, you know, we were working with the Greater Cincinnati Foundation, and they had a COVID campaign that they were working on to distribute funds to charities in need. And at one of the early meetings during the COVID crisis, they sat down and they selected 20 organizations that primarily funded basic human needs, food insecurity, shelter, child care. And I used our technology, BlackRock Grant Making, to create a simplified application that I could send to the 20 special grants, have them complete that, and then I may process the checks to them. What that allowed us to do is not only keep a record of those special grants, but then I Created an evaluation so that at the next year they could complete an evaluation, very brief, very similar to the application that just told us how they used the money. And we continued to do that for two years where we made special grants.
0: So, again, I'm hearing a link to how technology was the key here and enabling you to to push this new grant portfolio forward. And how wonderful that your board had, not only did they have buy-in, they were sort of the catalyst behind this new direction. So they must have been very connected and in touch with the community needs at that time, which is exactly what you want from your board leadership. And I'm curious, I'm not hearing much about pushback from either of you, but do want to... make some room to talk about how to handle pushback when you are trying to respond to a crisis while staying within your mission and maybe even evolving new programs or new grant portfolios. I think that it's probably a common experience for foundations to experience some pushback, perhaps from their major donors or from their board leadership or even staff. Have either of you experienced Mm -hmm. that? And if so, how did you get past it? Well, I would think
2: during the 2008 financial crisis, It was, we probably received pushback, not because we weren't making the grants, but how much to reduce, you know, how much can you cut somebody back to still make the grant serve its purpose? Um, So I, I would assume there had been some banter back then as to which organizations you would cut, how much you would cut them. And of course, they had already decided they could not take on any new programs. So
1: that was a question that was just eliminated. And Lisa, how about you? Excuse me. I think for our organization, I came on board just a little over six years ago and I was hired specifically to migrate our grant-making software, uh, our program that we had at the time. We had just purchased... Blackboard grant making, and it was my my job was to migrate that data and kind of build up this new grant making program. I was able to create these um, a custom application form that collected a ton of data. Um, you know, we kind of streamlined the process. We created the online application form, and on that form, made all of the data forms that we needed. Um, in our organization, the, the holes that we needed to fill by making these fields required by the applicant to fill out. I don't think we had any pushback from the board. The board was very supportive of the migration because the program that we were working on was very um, antiquated and, and there was no data um, reporting available in that system. So having this new program that we could report out on and, and be able to really measure outcomes was exciting for staff and for the board. I think where we had to get in was you know, when we when we launched blackboard grant making back in 2017 is when we came on board. We had no idea that we were going to be faced with a tragedy, you know, with some, with a crisis like COVID. Had we not had this program in place and been able to utilize that online application form and be able to kind of pivot on a daily basis to to um, modify that form or add or, or remove fields when we needed And to be able to kind of streamline the application and approval process, we would have been in a lot of trouble. I think where we had to get buy-in was, you know, the lessons that we learned from that, you know, seeing how long it was taking to get cash to people, using the data to kind of figure out how best to provide help to the people that needed it the most as quickly as possible. That was where, you know, we, we actually really had to change the way we did business. We changed how we paid our grants and then, you know, just moving into the 21st century is what I call it. But, you know, data and, and being able to like that data and being able to, to report on it and show outcomes was crucial to the buy-in and we didn't have a ton of pushback like I said but it it helped that we had all that data to
0: back up what the decisions that we were trying to make so and it sounds like also Lisa that the you had to be nimble your team had to be nimble but the software was nimble as well right the tech that you were using allowed you the application was dynamic I heard you say that you you know occasionally you would be like adding a form field or maybe adding a question so were you in real time because this Right. In times of crisis, we don't have four months to come up with a plan, a plan for planning the plan and then getting approval of the plan and then implementing it. So, you know, talk a little bit about that, about how time time, I imagine, was of the is of the essence. Right. In your line of work and how you are supporting uh, your recipients. Yeah. And, you know, and
1: I think, you know, we 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 went remote. We went 100 percent remote in a matter of days while we were trying to meet the needs of our community during this crisis. We were we were having strategy meetings on a daily basis.
0: Well, so with the few minutes that we have left, I know we've covered quite a bit, but I want to make sure is so one of my favorite things to do is top two or three tidbits, I suppose, that you would leave the audience with. So I'd like to ask you both for advice for newer organizations or young leaders that may be dealing with crisis for the first time. Um, you know, what are the top two or three things, you know, that they need to have in mind as they start to form formulate their response. And Lisa, let's just start with you and we'll have Beth close us up.
1: I think the first thing would be don't panic. Um, just make sure that, you know, you are, I think for me, sometimes it's easier to work backwards. You know, you, especially when you have this and what you feel might be an insurmountable task and, you know. Look, look where you need to end up and then maybe work backwards and say how do I get there um, don't be afraid of change don't be afraid to figure you know what I always say is no matter what pro- the problem is somebody out there have probably has come against it and and somebody else may have advice so look I mean do searches and and figure out has somebody else come across this problem use the um the internet as your as your encyclopedia if you have to. I mean, somebody else out there probably has had this problem and, and has figured out a way to to get through it. And if not, make sure you're sharing information with people so that they know how you did it. And, you know, if you have to evaluate processes, even on a daily basis, don't be afraid to do it.
0: Love those. And I have a follow-up for you. You know, it sounds like you really listened to what the data was telling you, as opposed to just doing confirmation bias, right? Hoping that it would tell you what you already thought to be true. How can you... what? You're really good at this. I can tell that you and your team have figured the secret out. So, can you share it with us? Um, how, what are the tips to make sure that you're listening to your truly listening to your data?
1: So, when you're when you're creating your um, forms and when you're create because you know everyone has to give you data before you can give them before you can give them help. Make sure that you are that you know you're, you know, you're asking all the questions that 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 you need to to build this profile. Ask for ethnicity, ask for gender, ask for age, ask for time and industry, ask anything that you can think of that's going to be able to tell your story. What type of household do you live in? Is it a single parent um, household or do you have two parents in your household? Um, what's your education level? Just there's no such thing as too much data. And if, you know, some things you can make mandatory and other things people can prefer not to answer. I find that most people are okay answering it, you know we're not selling their data. We're just using it to tell a story and we're using it to, to, as a predictive model so that we can provide better services to the community that we serve. But there's there's just no such thing as too much
0: data. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, Beth, over to you. What are some key two or three pieces of advice that you would offer newer organizations or young leaders that are dealing with crisis for the first time?
2: Well, as Lisa said, don't panic. I would say. Review your mission statement. You know, if you have to get up every morning and just read your mission statement to you, if that helps you get through the day, then that's something you should do. One of our board members happens to have 50 plus years in communications. And I think that has been a wonderful asset to our organization because he has been able to communicate with our constituents. And he has a good handle on the field. Uh, I also have a board member who has recommended the book Communi- "Communicating in a Crisis: A Guide for Management" by Renee Henry. So I think that's something you know to consider is just expanding your knowledge, whether it be of uh, crisis management or just knowledge of your community. And I also think our partnership with our community foundation was critical because. What we were not able to do, they were able to assist others. So I think it's really important to have those collaboration. And it's really, it's just so important to to work with your your grantees, get to know them. Site visits are always wonderful. And if you start doing this, making these things as a regular practice now, when a crisis comes up, you have that knowledge and you have this, what
0: you need to help out. Yeah, I love that because all of this change is much more manageable, right? If you have these strong, authentic relationships to work from, and those those are built over time. And I love, I love your nod to professional development, you know, seeking out webinars like this one and um, authors and studies um, that show, you know, how to manage in times of crisis, what's worked and what hasn't. And that's an important part of of growth, you know, as a professional and as an organization? Well,
2: we use our technology for our grants management. I really think in our case, it is the relationships that we have built over the years that has been so critical to the successes we have had and to the successes of
0: our organization. Yeah, that's a great point, right? It's also an invaluable relationship management tool. Absolutely. And and we find ways to do that. We
2: spotlight our organizations through local public radio. And I just think that is a wonderful idea that one of our board members came up with. And um, and it also gets our name out. So mm-hmm. it's a win-win for everyone.
0: Yeah, so uh, that's well, another piece, right? Be creative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, I All right, love well, that. I mean, I... Go ahead, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Why don't you uh, finish this out and then I'll hand it back over to Ray. Well, I was just going to kind of um, expand on on
1: what Beth said, being able to communicate not you know, I, we, I talked a lot about communicating with our, our stakeholders and our board members, but we also are using technology to kind of communicate with a younger demographic in the footwear industry. So we're like utilizing social media to kind of get the message out because we are such a niche foundation. We need to be able to communicate with the people who work in the footwear industry because those are the people that we serve. So not everyone is, you know, everyone's on a different medium these days. So we are our new challenge is to trying to make sure that we are communicating with everyone where they're getting their news from, whether it be to, you know, Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. We haven't jumped into TikTok, but you know, at some point we might have to. I mean, it's just being able to communicate with your with your base wherever they are. So that was that was the one the one um, communication point I had missed. Thank you, Beth, for for reminding me,
0: no problem. Thank you both ladies. It was wonderful to, to learn from both of you. Thank you for sharing both of your stories in such depth. Um, it's been an honor to connect with you and I hope we will stay in touch and continue learning from each other. Uh, Ray, I'm gonna hand it back over to you.
2: Awesome, thank you so much. I'm. I, you'll notice I'm standing up now because my uh, Apple watch just told me to stand up. So for those of you who've been sitting down for an hour, this is your reminder to stand up. You know, I loved uh, philanthropy doesn't end at five o'clock for me. You know, I think that's it's simple, but it's something that um, I think it's hard. The day to day grind, you know, can can wear away at that, you know, remembering what's really important. And I also like theory of change evaluation is a is a phrase I intend to start using in some (laughs) capacity moving forward because I really, really like that, too. I want to thank you so much, everyone, for being here and thank you for your participation and and have a great rest of your day and great rest of your month.
1: You too. Thank you. It was my pleasure.